Father, we're in need of setting our hearts again on that great hope that is ours in this life. Eternal life starts now and we have this hope fixed on Him now that is our hope when the waves crash in and when we're despairing, when we're hurting. And so come and minister that hope to us in the now. But Lord, we are fixed upon the prize. We run our race, not with our eyes on our own self, not running backwards, but with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are excited for the future that you have in store for us as believers, and we're excited that we get to participate in that future begins the moment we put our trust in Jesus and rest in Him. We pray as we come to see components of this hope in the person and work of Jesus from the book of Luke, that the Holy Spirit, you would be here, that you would minister the truth of Jesus, the truth of the message of the gospel, the truth of this text to our to our hearts, and that we would not simply be doers of this word, but we would be, or hearers of this word, but doers also. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we have the privilege to unpack perhaps the most famous parable, the most famous story ever spoken out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. You know the story, right? A man is beat up by robbers and he's left for dead. And a priest on the road sees him and passes by and doesn't help. And then a Levite is on that road and sees him and passes by and does not help. And then there's the Samaritan who sees him and stops, feels compassion for him, and helps him. We know the story. Uh, Or do we? Scholars have called the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most misunderstood parables in the Bible. Why? Please take your Bibles and turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan. As we continue our exposition of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10, I want you to find verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. This is where the parable begins. Luke chapter 10, look at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. Notice Jesus replied. 
Jesus is answering a question in the earlier context that leads into the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you see that? Jesus replied. And then he tells the story. And what a storyteller he is. So this takes us back, this, this response, this, this parable of the Good Samaritan is a response to something that's happened in the context. So the context, really, it's hard to tell when it begins, but for our purposes today, Luke chapter 10 verse 25 is the most immediate context, and I would say the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now we're doing verse by verse exposition, so in our minds are already our great salvation and the joy of our salvation and this, under, this, this wise and understanding person, right? In whom the, this great salvation is not revealed and, and infants to whom it's revealed. So we have that context in our mind and then we come to verse 25, the immediate context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so as I read this, and of course I'm going to start reading at verse 25, because that's where it begins, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 37. And I want you to ask this question and read carefully and ask yourself this question, what is the issue that Jesus is replying about or replying to when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan? What is the main issue here? That's your that's what you have to figure out as I read. So here we go. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, Wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. What is the issue that really connects this entire text together? It's found at the very first verse. Verse 25, right? It's the issue of inheriting eternal life. Verse 25, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How, this is the question he's asking Jesus, how does a person gain eternal life? How does a person get or have eternal life? How does a person inherit eternal life? And so this is a lawyer. This is, this is someone, a scholar. Uh, this is a scribe. This is an expert in the law. Expert of the understanding and application of the law of Moses. Of Moses. That's to whom Jesus is speaking here. And the lawyer does ask a great question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's like the guy in Acts, what must I do to be saved? It's really the same question. It's the most important question to ask and answer in the entire universe right here today in verse 25. It really is. So I want you to pay special attention today to the answer of this question. Unfortunately, this is a great question, a good question, but unfortunately, it comes from what I think is a bad heart. How do I know? The text says the lawyer spoke in order to put him to the test, to test him. Now, that's not a flattering word in the book of Luke. It's almost always used in the Gospels, for the leaders of the Jews, the religious elite who challenge and question Jesus and challenge Him, trying to trap Him and catch Him in His words. So, finding eternal life for this lawyer at this point is not the passion of his heart, the passion of his soul. No, the question is asked as a topic for debate to test the teacher. The preacher, Davis, tells the story of Richard uh, Buse. Um, he was a man who led a mission at the University of Durham in the past. And, and Richard was speaking with a faculty member. His ministry on campus. 
And that faculty member was a very cynical man. <laughs> a very cynical theologian. In fact, this theologian was an atheist. How's that for an oxymoron? A theologian who doesn't believe in theos, God. So he asked, that's a great question, so why, why theology for you, for a career? Why theology for you? Why do you mess with theology when you, when you don't think there's a God? And the theologian answered, it amuses me. It amuses me. So our lawyer in this passage probably isn't that, at that extreme, but as one has said, and I think he's right, curiosity drives him more than urgency, but it is the right question. And this question drives the entire interpretation of this passage, including the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want you to keep this in mind as we move forward, because I think that you'll find the interpretation of this passage uncomfortable and very shocking. Because here, is, and I think Davis is absolutely right. I'll give credit to him. He said it well. He said this, and it's the theme of our passage today. The Good Samaritan is really bad news. The Good Samaritan is really bad news. So how do we handle this passage? Well, we're going to unpack it, I hope, by God's grace, under three headings. The first heading is, Number one, the shocking reply. To that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The shocking reply, love fully. The shocking reply, love fully. So verse 26, Jesus responds to his question. Verse 26, and he said to him, okay, now, well, here's what Jesus is doing right now. You ready? You know what the parable of the Good Samaritan is? Jesus is doing evangelism. Jesus, you want to say, well, how, did the, how did the 70 evangelists do it? Jesus is doing evangelism. Now, how does Jesus do evangelism? I love it. They, the lawyer asks him a question. What is, how does Jesus respond? With a question. Okay, It's not the point, but let's make application. Asking questions is one of the best ways to help share the gospel and to get at the real issues of life. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So you've noticed that Jesus asks questions in his evangelism, but also notice where Jesus Christ goes for, for his source of authority. At that very moment during this conversation, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is holding every atom of the lawyer's body together by the word of, the power, uh, of his power. Every blade of grass around the globe is being held together by the Creator. That's the authority he has as the ultimate king of the earth. But where does he go as the God-man for his authority in evangelism? The Word of God. He goes to the book. Did you see it? What is written in the law? And then he says, how does it read to you? 
Yeah, what's written there? And importantly, we talked about this yesterday with a few people, how do you read it? How do you interpret what is written? Just like there's good teaching and false teaching, as Pastor Dan unpacked in his last sermon, there's good interpretation and there's bad interpretation. And let me tell you something, biblical interpretation is a matter of life and death. Okay, so that's Jesus' follow-up question, and so the lawyer has an answer. Let's look at it in verse 27. So the expert of the law answers Jesus' question, what does the law say? And what's interesting, he has sections of the law memorized. And so he goes, as a good, good uh, Old Testament scholar, uh, he goes to the first five books of Moses, and he quotes from two passages in his answer. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, followed up by Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, verse 18. So let's read about his answer in verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God, ek, or from, so with, I, I don't like the translation that, that well, it's different. It's from all your heart. So the text says in the New American Standard, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. But it's actually from all your heart. And then there's the same with your soul, with your strength and with your mind. So this love for God comes from within. The source of it is from your heart, and then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, and, and you have to supply the word love, right? Because that's what we, we have to. And your neighbor as yourself. So the scribe says, that is the answer to the question of what uh, you must do to inherit eternal life. Okay? Now look at this. I don't want to leave this. All, 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 all. How much is that? How are you doing with that? Okay. All, and there's many different ways that theologians have put this, but I'll try one here. All your emotion, it's from the heart. That's how you love God. All your consciousness, the soul, all your drive, all your energy and drive, your strength, all your intelligence, your mind, every part of you, inside and out, loving God in, listen, loving God in every way with all of you, all the time. And then the lawyer says, and love your neighbor as yourself. The same, love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. In verse 28, notice Jesus' shocking reply. To this question, it's, it's a reply to the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is Jesus' answer. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. And then Jesus, I think, quotes or at least strongly alludes to Leviticus 18 and verse 5. In fact, in some of your Bibles, New American Standard, it's capitalized to show they think it's a direct quote. Certainly alluding back to Leviticus 18 verse 5, do this and you will live. What kind of life is it? Eternal life, because we know how to read the Bible. Do this, and you will live. Loving God inside and out, in every way, with all of you, all the time, and loving your neighbor exactly how you would love yourself, and that verb of do this and live is not do once, is do this in the present tense, Constant, consistent doing. As one scholar says, this speaks of an abiding love and action. As Davis says, I think he's right, the connotation is an ongoing, continuous, unde- undeviating love. Do this, and you can just hear Jesus in his evangelism. Do this, and you will live. Mic drop. Right? How do you feel right now? You will live, it means inherit eternal life. Love God and love neighbor fully, all the time, with all of your being. Now, as we're just unpacking this text, how does this make you feel? How are you doing with this? How, how would you respond to this? I mean, we've read ahead, but let's pretend we haven't. How would you respond to this? How did the lawyer respond to this? That leads us to our second heading. Second heading is the common response. The common response. Doing fine. Doing fine. And that's a play on words, doing. I'm doing. I'm working enough. I'm doing just fine. Doing fine. That's the common response. That's fine. Let's look at it in verse 29. But, and look at the words that are used here. Paul picks up on the word justification uh, a number of times. Implanted here by Luke. But wishing to justify himself. You see that? Wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I'm sure you've caught that key, theologically packed couple of words. Justify himself. Wishing to justify himself. To to vindicate himself. Wishing to say about himself, doing good, doing fine, not guilty, just fine, done enough. 
in wishing to justify himself, he has to do something and ask another question of Jesus. He says this to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let's not talk about love. Let's debate about the object of love. Because if I can narrow the object of my love, if I can rein in the law, if I can make it doable for me, I can justify myself. That's what he's doing. Well, exactly who is my neighbor? Let's see if we can trap him and say something that will help get in trouble. You see, back then, for a number of reasons, the Pharisees adopted a view of the neighbor that the neighbor was the Israelite. And the Pharisees were such... uh, They narrowed it even further. Your neighbor was an Israelite who is a true Israelite, a holy Israelite. And then you have the outsiders and you have the, those who are impure that are not following God like they were. They were the enemies. You don't love them. After all, we have all of the Psalms. We have the Old Testament. You don't love these lawbreakers. You don't love the sons of darkness. I mean, they hated the Samaritans, case study, for example. For who they were. Who is my neighbor? Let's narrow this down a little bit. So he is trying to quiet his conscience by redefining neighbor. He's tried to seek confidence in his own position and efforts by redefining neighbor. But what I'm trying to say, and why I left you dangling in verse 27 and 28, is that the law... And Jesus' response is a problem for us. It's a big problem for us. For sinners like us. But the lawyer didn't seem to be bothered by it. He he wanted to justify himself. Your response to everything leading up to verse 29 is a matter of life and death eternally it really is do you dumb down God's law so that you can justify yourself or do you see your need for Jesus God the Father through Jesus to justify you and do something for you the common response is I've done enough Don hears it 24-7 in the nursing home. It's not how God works. That's not how I've worked. Do you know that my mom played the organ for 55 years? Do you know what I've done for my country? When I spilled my blood on the field? I've done enough. I've done my best. Come on. I'm a good neighbor. I'm sincere in what I believe. And so this is what we do. 
we're not, we don't understand theologically what we're doing, what we're doing, what the lawyer had to do. He had to, he had to limit the scope of the demands of the law on the soul of men. He had to dumb down God's law to create a way around it, a loophole to give ourselves some slack, to give ourselves some wiggle room, an excuse. But I'm telling you here this morning that the law of Moses, the law of God, doesn't give you wiggle room. The law of Moses, the law of God demands for perfect and complete love of God and perfect and complete love of man in order to justify yourself. Every moment, every day, your whole life without end. And the common response is, I'm just fine. I'm doing fine in an attempt to justify myself. And so that leads us then into the actual parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is replying to this back and forth conversation Specifically, he's replying to the question of who is my neighbor, but the whole context is there. It leads us into the third heading, the true religion. The true religion, working faith. Okay, so we get to the parable. Jesus replied, now we we know what he's replying to, and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now, this is not an actual event. This is a story. Okay? This is called a parable. But it's got a background. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was very steep. It was a tough 17-mile hike. And there's lots of bends in the road and lots of caves. And robbers would hide in these caves. And, you know, you could be in trouble. It's a very dangerous road where you could be robbed and and all of that, just like what has happened here in the story. And, of course, that's what happened. He gets robbed. They strip him of his clothing. He's his outer garments. They beat him to the point where he's half dead. And three pass by on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The first is a priest. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest, think of kind of Judaistic religion, the priest is kind of near the top. And so the priest, um, he ministered in the temple, he led the people of God, he would really be the pinnacle of piety for the people. If anyone's going to heaven and can justify himself, it's the priest. So the priest, here's, here's Jesus' point, the priest didn't help and pass by on the other side. You should see the ink the commentators spill to try to determine why he doesn't pass by on the other side. And I kind of chuckle, it's a story! He's making this up. Okay, here's the point. He didn't help. Second person that passed by, the Levite. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he's, the Greek seems to think he kind of maybe looked and lingered a little bit, even considered the help. 
but he too passed by on the other side. And so the Levites weren't as high-ranking as the priests. They were more servants of the temple. Perhaps you could call them an assistant to the priest. And so you got the, kind of the top dogs, you, you got the bottom dogs, and the scribe is somewhere in the middle, and Jesus is kind of painting the whole Judaistic religion top to bottom and saying, they pass by. They pass by. But, which means they didn't what? Their neighbor. Love. Good. They didn't love their neighbor according to the law. The third man passes by the half-dead man. He was a Samaritan. It's very emphatic in the Greek, but a Samaritan. I'm trying to read like the, the text is written in the original as best I can. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. So he doesn't pass by. He feels compassion from the inside, from the source, ek, from the heart. He loves from the heart. He felt compassion. And this would be an absolute shock because the Jewish best of the best and everywhere in between is said that they're not going to inherit eternal life evidenced by their lack of love. Whereas this Samaritan, this disgusting, half-breed, low-life, let's go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem, not even come close to their land guy, was the one who was going to inherit eternal life. Shocking. This lowly, half-breed Samaritan. Descendants of mixed marriages from paganism. Corrupt, syncretistic religion with the competing temple. Here's what a quote by Kostenberger that reminds us how the Jews felt about Samaritans. He says this, quote, Some Jews were willing to eat with Samaritans, but many were not because of ritual defilement. Samaritans were thought to convey uncleanness by uh, what they lay, sat, or rode on, as well as by their saliva or urine. Samaritan women, like Gentiles, were considered to be in a continual state of ritual uncleanness. If you want to remember how much animosity there were between the Samaritans and the Jews, it's just considered Jesus' sort of well-taught disciples. It's at first drop of a hat. At any inhospitality from Samaritans, hey, let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah of old. Let's burn them to a crisp. If you want to understand the animosity to the Samaritan people. So what a shock to find out that the religious elite, he's saying, in general, don't have life. But this lowly Samaritan in the story has life. And how do we know? By looking at their love. Or lack thereof. Verse 34. Let's, let's see how Jesus describes this man's compassion. And many verses are taken up in this passage to describe His great compassion. So I take that as what Jesus wants us to see, the over-the-top description of love for neighbor. 
Jesus is not able to debate someone's love for God as easily. I mean, come on, you don't love God. Oh, really? Thanks for you know, reading my heart. But love is manifest, is it not? So Jesus goes at what he could tackle in respect to his humanity in his evangelism. And he came to him, verse 34, and, ba- and he's telling the story of what the Samaritan did out of his compassion of his heart. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so the Samaritan was willing to be interrupted in his, in his trip. The Samaritan... Um, took his own clothes, because this guy was stripped naked, and makes bandages out of him. He took great care. He poured oil to soothe the wound. He, he used wine to help disinfect the wound. And then carefully and gently, he takes this man and he places him on his own beast. And he himself walks. And he brings him to the inn. And he doesn't just drop him off. The text says that he took care of him. He took, t- he took care of him. So the Samaritan is taking care of him. Very tender word. On the next day, so he's delaying longer, he stays overnight, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, cost of the overnight, a little pricey, a couple of days labor, two days, one denarii a day, it's a decent inn, doesn't go to Motel 6, wants good care for this man, pays for it, Stays overnight, delays his travel. Verse 35. On the next day, he took the he gives them to the innkeeper. He says to the innkeeper, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So he's going to pay for his recovery. This guy was beat half dead. He stayed the night. He takes out, he pays for those. With his wages, he instructs the innkeeper to take care of him. And he goes away and hands him over to the innkeeper. How many nights did he spend there until he recovered? How many days and nights until the Samaritan would return? It's over the top to pay for all that. It's absolutely, Jesus is saying, he's going over the top. This didn't happen. He's telling a story. He's making a point. Some would say this isn't realistic. Paying for all the hassle, all of the supplies, whatever more you spend, trusting some unknown individual perhaps, doesn't matter. I count the cost. I just want to make sure this man is cared for. This is the story that Jesus is telling. This is a picture of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Now just do that all the time at every opportunity. And you're good. Stretch yourself out at great cost to yourself. 
Love as, your, as yourself. No one ever hated, Paul says, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes your flesh. And Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, I want you to see this. This is so important. Look what Jesus does. Look back at verse 25. What did the lawyer say? Look at it in verse 29. The lawyer says, right, he's trying to fix the law. He says, who is my neighbor? What is, how does Jesus turn the question around? Did you see it? Look at it in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So, the lawyer's you know, not looking at himself at all. He's trying to mitigate externals. He's trying to do the shell game and control his environment so that he can keep the externals, so that he can keep up with his external religion. Jesus twists it. Jesus changes it. Who is a neighbor? Not who will be my neighbor. Are you a neighbor? Who is really a neighbor in his being? That's what Jesus is saying. It's not about others. This, I'm talking to you right now. Are you a neighbor? You're the issue. The issue, he's saying, is internal. The issue is the heart. And we know love here is being used for service, but it's out of a heart of compassion, and the word mercy is used in verse 37. And he said to the one who showed mercy towards him, that is the one who is a neighbor. So, how are you doing loving a neighbor like this? How are you doing loving God with every aspect of your being all the way, all the time? How are you doing loving your neighbor like this? All the time, every opportunity, Jesus is doing evangelism. Jesus is bringing him the bad news. He presses the bad news. The lawyer didn't need a precise definition of neighbor. The lawyer needed to see that he hasn't done this at all. This is not who he is. He hasn't fulfilled the law. He doesn't have this heart. If this thesis is correct, the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is to bring the bad news to a self-righteous lawyer. The Good Samaritan is bad news for sinners like us. So let's drive this home for the balance of our time. What is, what is Luke doing here as he records this? Well, let's start externally. And let's move to the heart of the purpose of this parable. Because this is teaching that Christians ought to love. 
If, if you're a true believer here, you love God, am I right? And you love others. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have the Spirit of the living God and you really desire to love God. You really desire to serve and to love God and to stretch yourself out and to be more like Jesus. And, and so when you read a passage like this, you do say, Lord, forgive me for being silent. Forgive me for passing by on the other side. You know, you, you watch a movie like I did, like The Sound of Freedom, and, you, and, you, and you're just kind of like, ah, oh, the world is so broken. You wonder what you can do. And you see the kids being slaughtered in abortion mills, and you wonder if I pass by on the other side. And so that is the work of the Spirit in, in, the, in this parable. There is a, a place for that in this parable. That, that a Christian says, I want to be like the Samaritan. I want to be more like Jesus. There's a stirring a heart of a believer to love in this passage. It's not really the main point of the passage, though. But it's there, but we drive to the next layer where we learn this. Christians ought to love, but watch this. Here's getting closer to the main point. Love is the litmus test of true Christianity. Jesus is bringing the bad, it, bad news to this lawyer. Love for God and love for others is the litmus test as to whether or not you will, at the end, inherit eternal life. You, guys, listen carefully. We can't ignore this passage. Do you love God? Do you love others? If you do not love God, and out of that is first, and out of that love for God, love others, how does eternal life abide in you? It is clear that Jesus is bringing this bad news to this Judaistic lawyer, the priest, the Levites, the whole system. There's evidence that you don't have eternal life. You know why? You don't love. You don't love me. You're testing me, trying to get me killed. And you don't love God and you don't love others. And I know why you don't have eternal life because you don't love. Love is the litmus test for life. You say, is this scriptural? Galatians 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Get rid of this externalism. But faith working through love means what? Everything. Or... Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is... I like what Bach said about this Samaritan. He's a scholar. Bach said about the Samaritan, by reviving life, he showed that he had life. Or, you can't depend on externalism and jumping through hoops in Christianity. Here's the deal. This is saying you must have a new heart. You must be born again. You have to have a heart change. Love is part of the vocabulary of life. One theologian I think is right. He gets to the heart of this. Quotes, Jesus does not supply information as to whom one should help. Who's my neighbor? Let me help you mitigate the lot. He doesn't supply information as to whom one should help. 
Failure to keep the commandments springs not from a lack of information, but from a lack of love. It was not fresh knowledge the lawyer needed, but a new heart. In plain English, conversion. End quotes. So, this is certainly the next level of meaning of this passage. That love is the litmus test of life. But that's not the point. That's the next layer. It's there. But here is the ultimate and most important point. And frankly, and frankly, if you don't have what I'm about to say and what I'm about to say hasn't happened to you, then it's evidence you've never had a new heart and you'll never have a desire to love or actually love anyways, anyways. We've got to get to the bottom of this in this passage. Here's the bottom of it. The fountainhead. It's not ultimately about our love. The Good Samaritan is not ultimately about your love. It's about your lack of love. The fact is, as sinful, fallen human beings, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not trying to justify ourselves, we must admit that we have broken the law of God both in the things that we have done and the things that we have walked by, passed by, left undone. The fact of the matter is, come on, we have not loved the Lord our God all the time with all of our faculties at every opportunity with all of our being. And how many opportunities to love our neighbor have we passed by? Jesus is trying to humble us. Jesus is trying to, to bring the bad news to us. Are we full of wise and understanding? Wise and understanding, we're doing just fine and we're religious like we saw in the last? Or are we going to become like infants and recognize that we are absolutely dependent on God's grace and we're absolutely hopeless and helpless? Which is it? And Jesus is pressing the point. He's trying to humble us. We're meant to see this. As Paul said in Romans 3.20, no human being will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. If you can perfectly love God inside and out every second of your life and love others all the time, 100%, no failure, then you can live by the law, as Paul in Galatians. No one except one. Matthew 5.48 Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James 1.10 Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. This law of God is perfect. The law is particular. The law is holy. The heart of this parable is it's bad news. The law is rigid. You can't fence it in. You can't mitigate it. You cannot justify yourself before God. That's the point. You cannot depend upon jumping through hoops and eternalism. You must be born again. You must have a new heart to believe that you are dead in trespasses, not half dead, ironically, all the way dead in trespasses and sin, and that you need Jesus. You need God to justify you. That's what you need. We've got to come broken before God. It's like the tax collector. Right? Comes up to the temple beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me. The sinner, he knows he's undone. 
because he's broken the law of God and he feels it because his eyes have been opened to see his own sin and to know that he needs a substitute. And so he's at the temple. He needs a sacrifice for his sin. And Jesus wags his finger at those people and he says, I'll tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other because he cried out for mercy. So faith stops justifying yourselves and says, Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner. I haven't loved you as I ought. Please save me. And at that moment, you get a heart. You recognize your sin. You get a brand new heart. You trust in Christ. And now now the irony is you begin to love God. And you begin to love others. Not perfectly, but it's now the direction of your life. Ask Peter. How did Peter mess up? Denying the Lord. Wanting to go back to fishing and all of that. And Jesus comes to him. He knows Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? I'm a loser, Lord. I denied you. I want to give up and go back to fishing. But Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. We love because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Because we've come to the end of ourselves and admitted that we need Christ. You know what's so, what is so shocking about this parable? So misinterpreted. The irony is this. Admitting that I am not a neighbor is how you become a neighbor. That's the irony of this passage. Admitting that you're not like the Samaritan is how you become saved and a possessor of eternal life. The law says to us, and it's bad news, do this and live. And then the law tutors us and throws us back to the promises of the gospel found in Old Old Testament and made clear in the new, I need a sin substitute. I need a sacrifice. I I need a Savior. We're in need of mercy. So in this sense, I think it's absolutely a picture in this parable that we are like the man bloodied on the side of the road. We are unable to do anything. And Jesus is what? The good Samaritan. He is. He's the only one who loved God perfectly and fulfills Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus. And He came after us, bleeding out in our sin. And He came for us. He lived out love for others in full measure. And the evidence of that is taking upon flesh and coming into this sin-cursed earth, living an obedient life in our place and bearing our sin curse on the cross of Calvary. Drinking the wrath of God for others. How's that? For love at great cost to yourself. Jesus Christ, even death upon the cross. You know, it's funny to me, the lawyer got one thing right. His initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Yep, eternal life is something that has to be inherited. You receive an inheritance. You have to be an heir. No amount of doing will make you one. Keeping the law is a way of life. It is not a way to life. Now, I would just ask a question as we close, and we need to close. I know if the Holy Spirit has 
finally convinced you today that you've broken the law of God, summarized in loving God and loving others, then you need to come to Jesus and find life. You have no other hope. You're undone. You failed. You're in big trouble. It hurts to come to that place. It hurts. It hurts. It's hard to hear. But I would pray that you would ask the question that the lawyer asked. But you wouldn't ask because it amuses you. You wouldn't ask because you're trying to win an argument. Put your parents or your friends to the test or string them along by faking it. I would pray that the heart has been changed and that you're like pilgrim's pilgrim's progress, fleeing the city of destruction has a burden of sin on his back and he feels it. And he must be released from it. And the evangelist says, go. Go to him at the wicked gate. And his own family says, come back, come back. And plugging his ears, he says, he turns and runs and says, life, life, eternal life. And at that wicked gate, he finds one. And he passes out of death to the life. And that one is the one hanging upon the tree. And at the sight of him, Upon the tree, his burden rolls into the grave and he is set free, set free to love.